Revelation chapter 6. So I will just let you all know before we get into this, tonight will in some ways be a prophecy update. Unexpectedly, but when you're studying through the book of Revelation, pretty much every study is a prophecy update. So if you come along in a couple months and say, hey Rick, are we going to do a prophecy update? I'll say, what do you think we've been doing since October? But there are some things we'll talk about tonight, and to the point that I almost saved this. I I got through most of my study yesterday afternoon, came home, and I told Cheryl, you know, I I would love to share this on a Sunday morning. Um, Not because you all are not worth it, you are. But because it's just, it is what it is. More people are here Sunday morning than on a Wednesday night, and so I want as many people as possible to hear certain things. There are certain teachings that I just think, "Ah, I, I want the whole fellowship to hear this, and I almost did that, and I thought, no, you chose to be here tonight. (laughs) No, we just need to keep going. So Father, I ask tonight, Lord, would you confirm your truth? As we study more of of this, especially this front end of the tribulation, as we look at Revelation chapter 6, and and what we talked about Sunday, Lord, difficult things, hard things, not necessarily a, a happy New Year's message, except for the fact that you loved us enough to give it ahead of time, loved us enough to give us a new year where there is yet time for people to still make decisions for Jesus. And I ask that as we study this, we would come at it from that position, Lord. For those who have made decisions for Jesus and and the bulk of us here tonight who have trusted our lives to Jesus, that our lives would be about now the salvation of others. And for those who haven't, to make that decision now and not to put off. The Lord Jesus, we entrust those things to your Holy Spirit, moving in us, teaching us, leading us. And we ask tonight that we would be moved in your direction. By the workings of your Spirit, in Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, so, after judgment with the household of God, as Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 4, we looked at Sunday, after that comes the judgment of the world. And Peter said in 1 Peter 4.17, If it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And as I shared on Sunday, the outcome is detailed in raw footage, if you will, Revelation 6-19. through 19. Revelation chapter 6, I am convinced, and I will show you even more of why tonight, Revelation chapter 6 gives us the first three and a half years, all in one chapter. Now, there are further uh, teachings in Revelation as we go that you'll see we'll refer back to that first three and a half years. We'll discuss or overlay chapter 6. But we get the primary uh, teaching of the first three and a half years, or 42 months, or 1260 days of that judgment, of what Jesus called the tribulation. Jesus used two phrases, two terms. The tribulation and the great tribulation. The tribulation referring to the first six and a half years, or first three and a half years, Revelation chapter 6. And the great tribulation, the last three and a half years, which we'll see in Revelation chapter 8 and 9 and 16. And we'll see that as we get there, so don't worry about those things just yet. 
But the tribulation Jesus already warned is that time, Revelation chapter 3 verse 10, which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Seven years. Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 through 27. Revelation 11, Revelation 12, all detailed. Seven years, give it that seven year picture, beginning again with the first three and a half years, the tribulation, also known as the wrath of the Lamb. But, before 42 comes, that is 42 in terms of months, comes 24. Check it out. It's mathematically sound. 24 precedes 42. And so we're going to kind of do that tonight. We previously noted that the seven kingdom parables of Matthew 13 uh, paralleled the letters to the seven churches. We looked at each of those when we were in the letters and found it very interesting how each each kingdom parable has a, a parallel letter and it goes chronologically one through seven. Well, there's an even more compelling parallel in the teachings of Jesus. And that is between Matthew 24 and Revelation 6 and 7. So I want you to do something. You're going to need a finger in two places tonight. Revelation chapter 6 and Matthew 24. So go ahead and get ready. One finger, and it's real easy to do. So how I'm doing this, you put one finger in Revelation 6, and you put your thumb in Matthew 24, and you'll be able to just flip back and forth and back and forth. And that's what we're going to do tonight, because I want you to track this down. I feel strongly that we not only take the Word of God literally as as we teach it, but that we're precise in our understanding of the Word of God and we try not to miss things. That doesn't mean we're perfect. And it doesn't mean as a Bible teacher that I know it all. I don't. In fact, what I find the more I study is how little I know. But the idea is not to be scholars. The idea is to be precise with God's Word. And to let God's Word teach us God's Word. And what's exciting to me about studying Matthew 24 and Revelation 6 and part of 7 all together is we let God's Word confirm God's Word. And that's what we're going to do. So I want you to follow this through with me, starting in Matthew 24, your finger in Revelation 6. Matthew 24, verse 1 says, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when His disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to Him, which, by the way, were stunning. Consider one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The Jewish temple in Jerusalem was amazing. Herod's temple. Herod's retrofit of the second temple. The second temple was not much to look at. But Herod's job was fantastic. Stunning, gilded, shining, beautiful, big. And and they all came out of the temple complex. And the apostles were saying, Lord. Yeah. I mean, it would be like us walking out the door of our church and saying, Look. Which is easy for us to do having been in a barn for so long. We can go, wow, running water, heat, carpet, you know. So they come out and Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? They're like, well, yeah, yeah, Lord, look, yeah. Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Subtext. Don't put your faith in buildings. Don't trust that which we, you know, meet in. That's not the thing. That's not the kingdom. That's not the focus. The focus is Jesus. It's all going to be torn down, he says. 
Well, they cross the Kedron Valley. They go up onto the Mount of Olives. It says in verse 3, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. They ask three questions and they tie it all together. They can't imagine the temple being torn down without it being the end of the age. It's got to be. The temple goes, that's got to be it. And that's got to be then, so you're going to set up your kingdom and we're going to rebuild, you know, as, as Zechariah and Zephaniah both refer to, well, we're going to do that. That's what you're talking about. When's this all going to happen? Three questions that Jesus begins to answer in the following verses. And what Jesus does in the rest of Matthew 24 is He begins describing the run-up to, and listen, into the tribulation. He goes up to the tribulation and into the tribulation. And when I say tribulation, I'm talking first three and a half years. Following the fall of Jerusalem, with increasing intensity and frequency, as the final days come nearer and nearer, and we actually see the world go into tribulation, Jesus uses the phrase, you're familiar with it, birth pangs. Exactly. (laughs) Birth pangs. She remembers. (laughs) And those birth pangs, it's it's a very descriptive phrase because you, you ladies know if you've gone through that, that you get closer to the birth and as you get closer, the pangs get closer together, frequency, and they get more intense. So it's a perfect phrase for Jesus to use. And going all the way back 2,000 years, the birth pangs began. The temple fell. And for 2,000 years, we've seen an increasing frequency and intensity of birth pangs. That's what he's talking about. But these birth pangs, again, and this is new thinking to me, so I'm kind of laying it out to you fresh, at least for me tonight, these birth pangs don't stop at the beginning of the tribulation. These birth pangs run into the tribulation. Go through the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Now, we won't experience those three and a half years. The church, believers in Jesus, having been caught up, pre-tribulation. Yes, I'm one of those. Pre-tribbers. Don't you want to be a pre-tribulation raptured saint? Okay. So, we will be caught up, but the birth pangs will continue leading up to the midpoint of the tribulation. Well, how do you know that, Rick? Well, we're going to get there. Remember Sunday's terms and conditions. Again, and I just do this to be clear, that the tribulation is the first three and a half years, and then the second three and a half years is the great tribulation, and I'm drawing that right out of Matthew 24, as you'll see. The first three and a half years, the wrath of the Lamb. The second three and a half years, the wrath of God Almighty. The first three and a half years, there's still opportunity to be saved. People will be saved. There's going to be a massive soul harvest in that time. The last three and a half years, all repentance ceases. And if I'm reading things correctly, past the midpoint of the tribulation, going into the great tribulation, nobody will be saved. Except Israel in the wilderness. But we'll get there at another study. But salvation of saints coming to faith in Jesus outside of Israel, that's not happening anymore. I could be wrong on that, but I think it stops at that midpoint, primarily because after that, every time we hear the word repentance used, it's used with they refused to repent so as to be saved. 
but those birth pains right into the first three and a half years. The first three and a half years is Revelation 6. Revelation 11, verses 2 and 3. Again, call it 42 months, three and a half years. 1260 days, three and a half years. The wrath of the Lamb and birth pangs are taking place all the way through with greater intensity and severity and frequency. Then, chapter 7 is a parenthetical chapter talking about what is happening at the same time as chapter 6. We'll see that when we get there next week. Then chapters 8 and 9 take us on into the latter half of the tribulation, the great tribulation, the final three and a half years. A time, times, and half a time as described by Revelation 12, 14, and that is again the wrath of God. So that our understanding is clear. And the marker of the midpoint between the tribulation, the wrath of the Lamb, the first three and a half years, and the great tribulation, the wrath of God, the second three and a half years, the marker in the middle is called the abomination of desolation. And we will see that clearly when we get to it as well. There's your background. Hold that thought and watch this. Matthew 24, verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, See, that, see to it that no one... What? Misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. Let me say one more thing before we go any further. This section of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24 does span 2,000 years. Okay? So the warnings here, I think, are valid for us right now, here today. See to it that no one misleads you. The deceptions are increasing, and I'll show you that in a few minutes too. See to it that no one misleads you. However, the great deception that is coming will happen in the tribulation. And as a matter of fact, now flipping over to Revelation chapter 6, verse 1, Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, As with a voice of thunder, Come and see. The come and see, that's implied. Come and see. I looked, John writes, and behold, a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer and it is that great deceiver, the white horse rider, Antichrist. Seal number one, the white horse rider is Antichrist. And I'm not going to go into that because we talked about that on Sunday. What is it about this picture we see in Revelation 6 verses 1 and 2 that reveals deception? Well, you know, the bow, which is a false covenant, and the crown, which is that leafy Stephanos that wilts and does not last. He comes riding to conquer and to conquer, or conquering and to conquer. We see the people who follow him, the riders who come after him. This is the one who breaks covenant. Jesus never breaks covenant, and on and on. But this is that deceiver Antichrist, and he comes riding in with this false Peace. Now listen, what is it that you would say is the most prominent prophetic indicator of the times that we're in right now? 2019, the number one prophetic indicator. What do you think that might be? And we give a lot of answers for that. You could say wars and rumors of wars. That's, a, that's an indicator. You could say, uh, I mean, Syria, Afghanistan. Washington, D.C., wars and rumors of wars. (laughs) Famines and earthquakes. Would some say, well, it's famines and earthquakes. Yeah. The increasing severity and the frequency of earthquakes has been unparalleled in 2018. And famine and all of that over this last year has been on the rise and, and the uptick. Global disasters. 
Flood, fire, the campfire. Devastating. So all these things happening in this last year, nearly unparalleled, and the earthquakes and the number of earthquakes, and you can look all that stuff up and study it, are those the indicators that this is it, that we're in the the last of the last days? I, I think they are all indicators. But among those birth pangs, the one thing more than anything else that we as Christians ought to be aware of that is preparing the world for the rise of the Antichrist as a great deceiving man of lawlessness, though he'll seem like a man of peace, is globalism. Globalism. The idea that what we really need is just one government for planet Earth. A United Nations of sorts. That if we could just get all together, get rid of boundaries, get rid of barriers, get rid of borders altogether, and just have one government, one global rule, then we'll be fine. Now, I would agree with that if the global ruler is Jesus Christ. And we will see that. But that's not the world the world's way of looking at it. The world wants a world leader and the world wants to get toward... I mean, globalism, it just sounds like the answer. You've heard phrases like the global elites. There are those who meet, the the, the Bilderberg group. You know, those who gather and, and talk about globalism, world global values. And I've got to ask you a question. I want you to think about this. Why is it that evangelical Christians are in such strong support of President Donald Trump? Because they are. We are. Many of us. Some, of, some are not. Some say, I would never vote for Trump. He's just so crass. Okay, I didn't, I didn't vote for Trump because of a reputable past lifestyle. Nor do I support him because of his meekness. How he turns the other cheek. You know, like Jesus. He's so Christ-like in that way. No, he's not. He's crass. He punches back. He is not the rep. But I didn't. I didn't vote for a pastor. Voted for a president. But I got to tell you something, and I'm I guess revealing to you who I voted for. And so some of you want to leave now, go right ahead. But listen, our president is not exactly the picture of a godly man. But I personally believe he is God's man for America right now. Now you can look back over the kings of Israel. And there were several of those kings of Israel that were not good kings. But they were God's choice. They were God's placement for that time, for that season, for a reason. Well, Rick, why would you think that President Donald TV personality Trump, why would you think he is the right choice? Because President Trump is a nationalist. And he has said it right in the face of the global community. He has declared it twice at the UN now. I'm a nationalist. That is the exact opposite of a globalist. Globalist wants to drop borders and let's just all get under one world ruler. One world government. And by the way, it's the elites who, who have the money and the power and really know what the rest of us need. Globalism. Or nationalism which says, we need to build a wall. We need to protect our borders. The nationalist is concerned for country first, world after that. And so Trump comes along and says, I'm a nationalist. Hillary Clinton was the darling of the globalists. 
They could not believe what happened. And I'm not playing games. I'm just, I'm just hear facts right now for a minute. Remember the Clinton Global Initiative? Globalism. And her values and her ideas, the, the, the globalists looked at her and said, she's the one. Because she will carry forward what, by the way, President Obama, who is a globalist, what he wanted to carry forward. Trump won the White House with what the global elite would have dismissed as a backward slogan. Make America great again. Drop the again and that would work in 1776, but not today. Not now. Make America great again. No, we're about the world and the world community and the one world order. That's what we want. And so the Bilderbergs and the Soroses and the Bezoses and the Gates of the world, not Josh and Melinda Gates, but the other Gates, <laughs> Bill, you know, gang, they laughed Trump off. They did not think he was even electable. And when he won, what have we seen? Fury and hatred. Now, I'm, I'm not here to give a political lesson. We're, again, I'm giving some facts of, of history in the last couple of years, but why is there so much venomous hatred for Donald Trump. It's not because of his tweets. And it's not because he punches back. Worst case scenario, you'd look at someone like that and just go, four years, we'll vote him out, no big deal. But there is hatred. There is anger. There is fury against him. Why? Because the nationalist is getting in the way of globalism. Because he's standing up and saying, no, I'm going to take care of America first and we're going to build a wall. You know, all the things that we hear him saying and the globalists are saying, this is a problem. You know why it's a problem? Because others are listening and they're going, that's a good idea. Nationalism. There are other world leaders that are beginning to think that maybe they need to take care of their country first too. This is a problem for the globalist. Rick, I thought we were in a Bible study tonight. We are. Some would say, and especially those in the younger generations coming up, what's wrong with globalism? In 2017, note this name. I just find it fascinating. Emmanuel Macron was elected president of France. Young man, dashing. I mean, not as dashing as your pastor, but a good-looking guy. and Clean-cut and sharp and well-spoken. His first name? Emmanuel? Oh no, Rick, where are you going with this? I'm not naming Antichrist. Not saying that. But I am saying, keep an eye on him. (laughs) When he was elected, the Economist magazine did a cover story on him. I just heard this. Just saw it, actually. You can Google this. It's fantastic. The Economist cover story on Emmanuel Macron is 2017, has a picture of him walking on water, and it's entitled Europe's Savior. (laughs) I thought you'd react to that. (laughs) Now, his popularity in France right now has completely plummeted. They hate him there right now, but he's young. And Europe and the globalists love him. And it's thought by many that perhaps he was floated as a leader of France just as kind of a, get his name out there. Let's start moving forward in this because this might be our guy. I'm not saying he is that guy. 
But again, what's wrong with globalism? Well, what did the Lord do? Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when He separated the sons of man, He set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. Of Israel, God set boundaries. God established borders for nations. That's, that was His doing. He determined that. And it's interesting that Moses says in Deuteronomy 32 that he did so according to the number of the sons of Israel, which could have different interpretations. It's interesting to me. Some say, so is that talking about that there would be then 12 nations because of 12 sons? Or or 70 nations because there were 70 of Israel who came from Canaan's land down into Egypt, perhaps? Listen, the number is not the thing so much as the fact that nations exist with regard to Israel. Still do. Nations exist with regards to Israel. What do you mean? As a nation blesses Israel, they're blessed. As a nation curses Israel, they're cursed. And while I don't quote John Calvin a whole lot, this is a good quote. He said... In Kyle and Delich uh, on Genesis, or, or I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, he said, In the whole arrangement of the world, God had kept this before him as the end to consult the interests of his chosen people. So, for Israel's sake, God, in establishing nations, set borders, set boundaries. By the way, I remind you, it was President Trump who was the first president in our history, in the history of Israel to move our embassy where it belongs to Jerusalem. That happened in 2018 too. That's a big deal. So while the globalists are angry and the nationalist Trump is crying, make America great again, he's also moving the embassy and he's honoring Israel. Interesting. But Acts chapter 17 verse 26 says, He made from one man, God made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Having determined their appointed times, and listen, the boundaries of their habitation. God set boundaries. And then, in Acts 17, Paul continues, I would ask, why? Why did God set those boundaries for each individual nation that they would seek God? if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He's not far from each one of us. The globalist is not seeking God. The globalist is seeking humanity and the elevation of the human spirit, not the Holy Spirit. And so God set those boundaries so that within those boundaries we would be seekers of God, not seekers of the grandiose system of humanity. And the Bible reveals the great problem with globalism with one very early story. Do you know what it was? Anyone want to take a guess? Babel. Let me read it to you. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. That's Babylon. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Dang, that was the first globalism that the world ever saw. Babel. The Bible says the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they're one people, and they all have the same language, and this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. 
Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. And again, Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, and Acts 17, verse 26 and 27 tells us He set boundaries. He located us, mankind, in different places, in different languages. Why? So that we would seek God and not each other. And it's only now, through the the internet, the world wide web, the United Nations, and all of this global mentality that we are right back to Babel. And when humanity gathers as a world order, whether it's old or new, it always does so in the name of Humanity, rather than in the name of God. Giving glory to mankind, rather than glory to God in the name of Jesus. So all that to say right now, keep your eyes open because the globalists are hard at work. What are they doing? Clearing a path for the white horse rider. Preparing the way for Antichrist to rise. Because once the globalists have their say... Antichrist will rise up right in the middle of that and be the world leader. And the world will fall at his feet and he will come in like a savior, writing, as Jesus said, see to it that no one misleads you for many will come in my name saying I am the Christ and will mislead many. And so while that is a warning even for our times right now, it also parallels Revelation chapter 6 verses 1 and 2. The white horse rider, the deceiver, Antichrist. Matthew 24, verse 6. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not frightened. For those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now we've seen that for 2,000 years. We have seen it with increasing severity, especially over the last century. World wars like such as were never seen prior to. In terms of casualty, we talked about on Sunday a bit, and what's taken place. But over in Revelation chapter 6, verse 3, flip over there, when He, that is the Lamb, broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come, and another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. Seal number two, the red horse rider is war. And war follows the white horse rider, Antichrist. He comes on the scene bringing peace, a message of peace, and war rushes in quickly behind him. Syria. Syria in Israel's backyard over the last several years now, but if you have been paying attention, Syria is a major marker of what's happening in these days. Isaiah 17 talks about Damascus being utterly destroyed to the point that it will not be habitable again. Which has never happened. Damascus has been destroyed, but Damascus is huge. And Isaiah prophesied that, Jeremiah prophesied that, that that was going to happen. So we're watching all that's going on in Syria. Do you know what's happened in Syria? It's become the stomping ground of Russia, Persia, Iran, Turkey, and even Yemen has jumped into the fray. 
And if you go study, we're not going to do it right now, but if you study Ezekiel 38 verses 1 through 6, it includes all of these nations and a few others. Amassing to the north to attack and destroy Israel. And there are many who are watching these things who believe that Syria is going to become kind of the the launch point for an attack on Israel. To try to take out Israel. And that's when the Ezekiel prophecy called the Gog and Magog invasion, that's when that will take place. Will we see that? Possibly. There's nothing prophetically that has to happen, although there's some things that could, but nothing has to happen to precede that. And we see it lining up. And it's lining up in Syria. Those of you who have been on our Israel trips, you know we stand on the top of Mount Bintal, and you can look down the hill into Syria. You can see Damascus off in the distance. From that same location, you can look to Syria to your right, and then if you look over to your left, you see Lebanon. It's that. I mean, it's literally Israel's backyard. Backs right up to Israel. If Syria falls, if Damascus falls, and Russia and or Persia or some kind of alliance takes it from the north, then it becomes the launch pad for an attack on Israel. Watching Syria. War. Rumors of war. The red horse rider. War. Who comes riding in. Now, by the way, when they attack Israel, God at that time will supernaturally intervene in such a way that the world knows God intervened. Which I kind of hope we get to see that before we go. I I don't know. It's going to happen right around. I mean, there's there's so many things that are going to happen so close together. Will the church be raptured? My assumption is we're going anytime. My assumption is that this Gog-Magog invasion could happen right before that or right after that. And then things are just going to start breaking loose. Well, the world is in upheaval right now. There's a Cold War, and I alluded to it before, and all joking aside, there is a Cold War going on in Washington, D.C. Again, between the nationalism of President Trump and the globalists and socialists in Congress. They're calling themselves what they are, so let's call them what they are. By the way, this last election cycle saw two virulently anti-Semitic Muslim women elected to Congress. And if you've been watching, watching this last week, Rashida Tlaib profanely called for Trump's impeachment. Now, that's not new. There have been Democrats calling for Trump's impeachment. And if you're a Democrat, maybe you have too. <laughs> but there have been those in Congress saying, we want to impeach him, we want to take him out. And she did this, but she did it in a vile way. She used a, a word I won't repeat <laughs> ever. But it, it was just, it was so... Again, regardless of what you think of the person in the office, it was so disrespectful to the office. I've never heard the office of the president referred to in that way before. Unbelievable. Now, she did today. Apparently, she apologized for the disgraceful comment, but what she apologized for wasn't the comment so much as that it was a distraction to the rest of the business that they need to get on to. I'm sorry for the distraction, she said. Cold War. Why is all this going on? Syria, what we see with this this standoff in our own government, why are these things happening? James, or Yaakov, chapter 4, verse 1, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And I would insert me. You do not ask the Lord. That's what James is implying. 
You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. But listen to how Yaakov links war and globalism. In the next verse, he says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. A friend of the world is globalism. That's what it means. That's the idea. So if you want to be a globalist and and say, yay, one world government, you're setting yourself against God. Yeah, but I thought Jesus was going to reside or preside over a one world government. He will as the dictator. But the point at that time is Jesus. Not the government. Not the elites. It's Jesus Christ, or as we're saying, just Jesus. Who knows what it's like to be poor and homeless and just Jesus. Back to Matthew 24. So we're going to see this, this deceiver come in as verses 1 and 2 of Revelation 6 say. That's going to be followed by wars, rumors of wars, the red horse rider of war, the second seal broken, verses 3 and 4 of Revelation 6. Well, now back in Matthew 24, continuing on in verse 7, and in various places, there will be famines and earthquakes, he says. Stop right there. Famine. So we would expect, if this is parallel, that the next thing that happens in Revelation chapter 6 is famine. Revelation chapter 6, verse 5. Then he broke, or when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. The black horse rider is famine. And there's a reason we understand this. First of all, he has scales in his hands. What are the scales for? Measuring grain in the marketplace. You know, we might not immediately think that. We might think liberty, you know, or, or justice. Uh, Supreme Court stuff, is that what the scale? No, the scales were for measuring food and measuring grain. They would pour the grain on the scales and then measure the weight of it, and that's how they purchased it and sold it in the marketplace. So here comes this, this rider on the black horse carrying carrying scales, and verse 6 says, And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. And we read that, and our culture say, Huh? What's that about? A denarius, note this, is a day's wage. So just think of a denarius as what you could make in one day of, of eight hours of labor. Let's, let's look at minimum wage. The national federal minimum wage, 2018, was 7.25 an hour. So 7.25 an hour for eight hours of work means you made 58 bucks in that day. The word quart here, he says a quart of wheat for a denarius. So a quart of wheat for 58 bucks, if we're translating. All right? Quart roughly equals uh, 32 ounces, which is the amount that we use of wheat in two loaves of bread. So you go to the store, you buy two loaves of bread, 58 bucks. That's a lot of money for bread. Okay? A day's wage, $58, two loaves of wheat bread. Washington minimum wage, by the way, is $12 an hour for eight hours of work, so that would be 96 bucks for two loaves of bread. And then he says also three quarts of barley for a denarius. Well, barley is the poor man's grain. 
wheat would be more average, you know, middle class. But if you're buying barley, it's because that's all you can afford. And barley was barley edible. It was poor man's grain. And the price isn't much better. You could get six loaves of barley for a day's wage, which comes to the equivalent of $9.66 a loaf of barley bread, the cheapest bread out there. Will there be a gluten-free option? I don't think so. I'm doubting it. So you might want to be raptured, you, you, you gluten-free folk. But if you're among the super rich, there's going to be all kinds of options. In fact, that's why oil and wine are not damaged. That's why he says, and do not damage the oil and wine, because when there's famine, the uber-rich can afford whatever they want. They can buy the oil and the wine. They still have the luxuries going on because famine always reveals the great divide between wealth and poverty. And that's what's taking place here. What's going on? By the way, why is famine described as a, as a rider on a black horse? Lamentations chapter 4 verse 8 says their appearance... Lamentations. Remember, this is Jeremiah lamenting the fall of Jerusalem, talking about the people inside the walls starving to death as they're besieged by Babylon. And he says their appearance is blacker than soot. They are not recognizable in the streets. Their skin is shriveled on their bones. It is withered. It's become like wood. Better are those slain with the sword than those slain with hunger, for they pine away, being stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. So the black horse rider, black horse, black being that that picture here of those who were in famine. Famine, by the way, I'm going to just say this as a side note because we speak very frankly in my family. I have three children that some would say were black children. They're not black. They are a beautiful chocolate brown. I'm envious. <laughs> I, I've never been able to tan well. You know, I get freckles or, or just burn, whatever. We say black. That's, that's not, I don't think that's a fair word even to use because that doesn't describe skin tone. So when we're talking about their appearance is blacker than soot, we're not talking about a beautiful skin tone of a race of people. We're talking about people starving to death and their appearance is awful. The black being described here is a blackness of famine. Famine rides hard after the hoofprints of war, which rides hard after the deceiver. By the way, the scales of the black horse rider, that indicates something else. Controlled rationing. Rationing that would take place, will take place, in that time of, of global famine, which will be, this stuff is going to be coming on in the latter part of the first half of the tribulation, of the first three and a half years. Starts off, everything looks like it's going to be good. Emmanuel Macron was elected in France, and all France went, Viva la France! <laughs> this is great! How long has it taken for France to go, Viva la, no way. Macron, get, no, get throw, throw him out, we don't want him. This is going to happen quickly. So Antichrist rises, deceiving, looks like there's going to be peace and prosperity, and next thing you know, war breaks out. Next thing you know, famine breaks out. And then, well, more follows that. Let me add one more thing here. In the idea of controlled rationing, Revelation 13 gives us a picture of what Antichrist is going to do. We'll look more intently at that later, but let me read this to you right now. Revelation 13, verse 16 he causes all, the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the freemen and the slaves, to be given a mark. 
on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Controlled rationing. That's the whole idea. The mark of the beast, by the way, is not going to be a surprise to people. They'll know exactly what they're doing. The person that takes the mark of the beast will know that's what it is. So don't worry if if you get an ATM card and go, is it the beast? (laughs) Your Apple Watch talks to you, is that the beast? You know, you'll know what you're doing. Well, not you, but people will know what they're choosing. But this mark, this is controlled rationing. Now, who buys what and how it's bought and who it will be controlled. Well, how are they going to have time to come up with that kind of technology? Not only is the technology already here, as many of you know, but it is embraced. When the idea of chip implants first came up, people were like, no way, I would never do that. That's bizarre. I wouldn't touch that. Listen to this. Biohacks International. I kid you not. The name of this company is Biohacks. And they've already installed over 4,000 chips in people inserted just below the thumb on the right hand. The implant opens secure doors, buys tickets, shares emergency info with medical personnel. The chip is about the size of a Tylenol, and the procedure costs 180 bucks. And it's similar to getting a tetanus shot. Dr. Stuart Southey, chief medical officer at Biohacks, says, quote, The chip implant is a secure way of ensuring that a person's digital identity is linked to their physical identity and enables access management in a way that protects the individual's self-sovereignty and allows users to control the privacy of their online activity. By the way, there's another famine... So, so biohacks and, and the chip implant and, and, and control rationing and all of this. There's another famine that's taking place right now that especially, I think, is one of the most overlooked signs of the times in the church. And you all are not suffering from it tonight. It's a famine for the Word of God. And that, to me, is a huge sign of the times that we're living in. Amos chapter 8, verse 11, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. And this is just, it's heartbreaking to me. Because we hear this more and more, people not finding the Bible being taught. In churches. Which to me, I don't understand that because that's one of the primary reasons why churches gather. is to be in the Word of God. There are literal doctrines of demons infiltrating churches because of this famine of the Word. I told you this is some of this is prophecy update, so listen to this. Where the Word isn't offered, what do people eat? What do people feed on? There's one alternative to the Word of God. It's personal experience. And what we see happening throughout the church is churches that are existing on personal experience rather than being fed the meat of the Word of God. And I want to give you an example tonight. I don't know if you've heard about the New Apostolic Restoration. The New Apostolic Restoration. If you haven't heard about this, you can look it up online. This is a thing that's been... hmm? 
Reformation? What am I saying? Did I say restoration? The New Apostolic Reformation. Thanks, Hillary. These are church, and I'm going to give you a couple of examples. you got to know this, especially up here in the Anacortes area where a particular church is lauded as a fantastic, wonderful, glorious thing down in Redding, California. Bethel Church. Bethel Church is one of the cutting-edge churches of the New Apostolic Reformation. Their pastor, uh, Bill Johnson. Over in North Carolina, Rick Joyner's Morningstar Church is also right at the front edge of this. The New Apostolic Reformation, or the NAR, this is... This is moving so fast right now. Jake asked me, and I talked with our staff about it this morning, but Jake asked me recently, what is the movement? Is there a movement happening in the church that you're aware of? You know, like we heard of the Purpose Driven Movement, we heard of the Willow Creek Movement and and Seeker Sensitive Movement. There, There have been movements over the last several years. Is there one going on right now? And about a month ago I said, well, I don't really see or I haven't really heard of anything. And then I heard about this. It's been going on for three or four years. And it's exploding in independent churches, in mainline denominations. It is moving so fast because it's all the feels. It's all personal experience related. Let me give you a couple of examples of their false teaching, which is causing a famine for the Word, which is why I'm bringing this up. They teach very strongly dominionism. Dominionism is also called Kingdom Now Theology, which says we are the kingdom. Now understand, we are citizens of the kingdom. And the kingdom is coming. But we are not living in the kingdom age. Dominionism says, yes we are, and what's going to happen is the, the, the church will conquer the world. They have a plan. It's called the Seven Mountains Plan. That, that goes after the, the mountain of arts and entertainment, and the mountain of education, and the mountain of the family, and the mountain of science. And there are seven mountains, and they have strategic plans in this movement to conquer these areas... My friends, it is not the job of the church to conquer anything but to bring the name of Jesus to people's hearts. Let the Holy Spirit conquer hearts, if you will. But we're not about taking over areas of even society or government. Far be- I don't want a Christian government. You know, Rick? No, it would be a mess. Legislating righteousness? I'm going to let Jesus do that. He knows how to legislate righteousness. He'll do it right. We would mess it up big time. What was I talking about? Oh, so dominionism. Kingdom now theology. There's also part of this belief system in the New Apostolic Reformation of the manifest sons of God, which takes from Romans 8, and it says specially anointed people are going to actually rise up, listen to me, to the level of Christ. And these will be the leaders of what? Of the new world order? It's Christian globalism. Kingdom now theology, my friends, is heresy. It is not biblical. They also believe, you're going to love this one. Ever hear of grave soaking? Grave soaking. Or graveside anointing. Where you go and you find the grave of a a famous saint that's passed away, like D.L. Moody. One of my heroes, go lie down on D.L. Moody's grave and you can, you can soak up some of his spirit. My friends, this is in the church. 
you can soak up some of his anointing. They base it on the story in the Hebrew scriptures where they threw the body of a dead man into the open grave of Elisha and the, de- and the dead man landed on Elisha's bones and jumped back to life and was resurrected. So they say, see, that's what we're talking about. Grave soaking. You know what the Bible says? It says, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. You want to be soaked in anybody's spirit? Be soaked in the Spirit of God. Why would I want... I don't want any of y'all's spirit. I don't. You could die. I am staying as far away from John Adelot's grave as possible. And you know what? John doesn't want my spirit either. John and I want the Holy Spirit, who, by the way, unites us as brothers. And that's how that works. Grave soaking. There are so many other things I can't even get into tonight. I don't have time. Uh, Benny Hinn, by the way, has done this. He's part of the new apostolic reformation. Uh, He's laid on the grave of Amy Simple McPherson. And he's laid on the grave of Catherine Kuhlman. Catherine Kuhlman was a famous faith healer. And he's based a lot of his ministry off of her. He's laid on her grave and he's described feeling her spirit rise up in him. uh, Feeling her anointing come upon him. And it's, it's... Bizarre. Doctrines of demons. Deception. And it's causing a famine for the word. We'll get back to the actual famine. So famine follows war, follows Antichrist. As is described now in the first several verses of Revelation chapter 6. Back to Matthew chapter 24, verse 7. So again, he says, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. In various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but these are all, note this, the beginning of birth pangs. Now let me ask you, what always rides hard after war, famine, and disaster? Death. In fact, there are two riders, and if you go back now to Revelation chapter 6, verse 7... You see, when the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come, and I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. So they're either both riding the same horse, (laughs) or there are a couple of ashen horses with these two riders on them, which is why I've said there are actually five horsemen of the Apocalypse. Death and Hades was following with him. Authority was given them over a fourth of the earth to kill with a sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now we talked about again on Sunday the death that will happen in the first half of the tribulation. During the wrath of the Lamb, the number is a fourth of the earth. We compared that 50 to 100 million that died in World War II, and we're talking about half the, a fourth of the population could be anywhere from 2 to 4 billion people. And so death follows on with all of these things. The question I would ask here with this fourth seal and this pale horse rider, and by the way, it says an, an ashen horse, the color is, is really a sickly death color. I joked about walking dead color, but it's a zombie color. It's skin falling off, kind of greenish, gross color. And that's the pallor of this, of this horse, of this rider on this horse of death and horse of Hades. And my question is that how many will end up in Hades versus beneath the throne? 
See, in this massive death that takes place in the first three and a half years of the tribulation, some of those dying, as we'll see in just a second, were or will be believers. And they will immediately, when they die, their spirit will go home to be with Jesus. Which, by the way, is why grave soaking is so absolutely heretical and wrong, because the spirit's not in the grave. D.L. Moody is not in the grave. You know, his body is, his spirit is home with Jesus. The Bible is absolutely clear about these things. When a person dies in Christ, their spirit goes home. Jesus said in John 14, 2, In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6, Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be where? At home with the Lord. When, if you die before the rapture, good news, you're with Jesus. And then your body gets raptured when the church is raptured, and that's a whole other teaching, but, you, but your body and spirit put together glorified and off we go. So those who die in Christ actually get to go before those who are raptured in Christ. Either way, it's good news. Either way, it's, it's good news. I, I, okay, side note. It's Wednesday night. I can go as long as I want, right, Bill? I watched a video I would encourage you all to watch. I don't know how many of you are familiar with John Corson, the pastor at Applegate Christian Fellowship. His son, Peter John, and his son, Ben, co-pastor with him there. Uh, Peter John has fought Crohn's disease for years and years and years. He's really had a hard time. The Corson family has amazingly attacked and has shown remarkable resiliency and faith. And if you go to the Applegate Christian Fellowship website, you will see there's a video that's presented right on the front of the website that you can watch. And it's Peter John last Wednesday night, I believe it was last Wednesday, it's within the last week, doing his final message. Because Peter John has been, um, uh, he, he has stage four colon cancer. And in fact, I heard just a couple of days ago that he's in hospice. He's, I don't even know how old he is, maybe early 40s, if, if that. He's a young man. But what's amazing, and the reason I tell you to go watch this, is not you know, just to be a looky-loo into someone's personal life. He, he comes out and sits down in a chair, and he's sharing with the fellowship there, and the, and the room is just packed out. And he's, he's just talking about how much he's looking forward to what, about, what God's about to do. And the perspective, I would love for you all to see this because the perspective is so right on. If something happens in this life and we are taken, praise the Lord. Don't fear death. That is the last thing we need to be concerned about. Do you know what? That every single one of you will be here exactly as as long as God wants you to be here. And not a moment longer and not a moment sooner. You're not going to go before He's ready for you to go. And when you go, He's going to be ready. And by the way, the moment that happens and your spirit is at home with the Lord, you're going to be saying, why did I ever want to wait? Why did I put this off? Which is why we walk by faith and not by sight. We trust in Jesus, not in our flesh. And we know no matter what happens in this world, we're not troubled by it. You get the call from the doctor, stage 4 cancer, and you say, okay, what do you want me to do with this, Lord? With a big smile because you know where you're going. 
And you know who's in charge, and you know that this is a drop in the ocean of eternity. So I I would encourage you to go and watch that. Because when death and Hades ride together, listen, no Christian is in Hades today. You understand that? Hades is a waiting place. Jesus described it in Luke 16. It's the equivalent of Sheol in the Hebrew Scriptures. No Christians in Hades right now. Because when Jesus died and bought redemption for all those who died before the cross, He led, Ephesians chapter 4, captivity captive. He led out all the spirits of all those who had died before. So that now, when someone dies in Christ, as we just read, the body goes in the ground and the spirit goes home to be with the Lord. There is no Christian in Hades right now. So when we see in this first three and a half years of the tribulation, when we see death and Hades riding together, there are believers at that time, not the church, but believers, those who missed the rapture but came to faith in Jesus, that are going to die. Hades will not have hold on them. Their spirit immediately goes home to be with the Lord. Well, I can, I can prove it to you. It brings me to the fifth seal. Turn over to Revelation chapter 6 and look at verse 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the Word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true? Wait a minute. Where are these people who have been slain because of the Word? They're under the altar. Where's the altar? Heaven. They're right there. Close to God. Close to the Lamb. Those who gave their lives because they refused to deny Christ in the tribulation. Because that's what John is describing in Revelation 6. And they cried out, verse 10, with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each one of them a white robe. I'm sure it's very fashionable. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Death rides. Believers are going to lose their heads. They will be killed in the first three and a half years of the tribulation. But Hades will have no hold. So if you're tracking these things through, and it's probably listed in your Bible, you've got the first seal, which is the white horse rider. You've got the second seal, which is the uh, seal, which is the red horse rider or war. You've got the third seal, which is that uh, the black horse rider famine. You've got the fourth seal, which is the ashen horse or the pale horse rider death, followed by Hades. And the fifth seal, interesting to me, is martyrdom. Go back now to Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, verse 9, Jesus said, Then they will deliver you to tribulation. And there he uses the word. Now, there are tribulations in our world right now. There have been martyrs for 2,000 years in the name of Jesus. The church has faced that, has dealt with that. Tribulations with little t. But I think Jesus is perhaps talking about tribulation with a capital T here. As the birth pains are leading right on into this, and we're seeing these things actually are also taking place in those first three and a half years. Now, are you tracking me with this? Have I lost anybody? Raise your hand if you're going, I don't have any idea. As if anybody would, right? Someone's going to go, no, it's me. So, at this point, 
Jesus is talking about, they'll deliver you to tribulation. They will kill you, martyrdom. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Because at that time, all nations are going to be in this global focus. And you, you believing people in Jesus, didn't we get rid of you in the first place? When a bunch of you just disappeared, how come you're here? And at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one, note this, the one, get this, the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. And that's not just in this age prior to the tribulation, that's going into the first three and a half years. How do you know that? Well, because Revelation talks about the perseverance of the saints. And deals with those who persevere, who hang in there. To the end, the very end. The end of this age isn't the rapture of the church. The end of this age is Armageddon, is the second coming of Jesus, which happens at the end of the seven year tribulation. Okay? We will read about these martyrs again in Revelation chapter 7 as John gives that parenthetical overview of Revelation chapter 6. And in Matthew 24, by the way, what's interesting is Jesus doesn't deal with what's coming up next. He doesn't talk about the next thing to rise in Revelation chapter 6 beginning in verse 12. We'll get to that in a second. It's it's the cosmological terrors that are going to hit at the end of Revelation 6. We'll get there in a second. But Jesus does continue, as He's teaching in Matthew 24, He does continue right on into Revelation 7. How do you know? Look at verse 14, Matthew 24. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. And it is the great verse of the missionary today, and and by the way, I think it should be, Our job is to get the gospel out. What's faulty in the interpretation of that is dominionism, that we will get the gospel of the kingdom to all the world, and then Jesus comes. That His coming is dependent on our completing this task. When the truth is, we're going to be raptured long before the task is complete. There is going to be a continuation of the gospel being preached in the first three and a half years of the tribulation. And we'll see this on Sunday. Revelation chapter 7 talks about 144,000 Jewish evangelists. And these Jewish Billy Grahams are going to be all over the world. And it is double the number of every missionary working in the world today. Roughly 70,000 throughout the world today, Christian missionaries. 144,000 Jewish believers in Jesus are going to be taking the word. Along with them, in the first half of the tribulation, Revelation 11 talks about two witnesses preaching and prophesying from Jerusalem. We're also going to see that there's an angel flying in the mid-heavens, calling out an eternal gospel. I mean, God is pulling out all the stops. It's remarkable, it's exciting, but what I'm saying to you tonight is we will not finish the task. We will try. We should try to be evangelists and and bring Jesus' name to anyone who will listen. But the Gospel will be preached in the whole world, completed during the first three and a half years of the tribulation, not by us, but by the 144,000 and the two witnesses and the angel in mid-heaven, among others. Now, the Matthew 24 parallel to Revelation 6 and 7 stops there. 
and would then pick up again paralleling in Revelation chapter 8 because note this in verse 15, Jesus comes right to the midpoint of the seven years. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Jesus is turning focus to those who are in Judea. Who is that? I'm giving you easy questions there. It's Israel. His attention is turned to Israel now, focused on Israel now, not the church. The church isn't here. And we have hit the midpoint of the tribulation which Jesus is about to call the Great Tribulation, if you look at verse 21, for then there will be a Great Tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Again, I repeat, in Matthew 24, verses 4-14, through Jesus describes these birth pangs leading up to the Great Tribulation. Increasing in the last days, right now happening already, but we're not in the tribulation. We're having tribulations, but we're not in the tribulation. But we are seeing birth pangs, we're experiencing birth pangs increasing, and what should this tell us right now? If the birth pangs continue into the first 42 months of the tribulation, what does it tell us about today? Gang, I think we're at the tipping point. I think we're that close and I'm not setting any dates and I'm not not saying even that 2019 will be the year although I would encourage you as I myself am encouraged to live as if this is it this is our last year we are near to the end of the age we are near to the final seven years we won't be here for the final seven years As, as Jesus said and you can note this in Revelation chapter 3 Verse 10, he says, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, Philadelphia, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I'm going to keep you out of that. That's Jesus' promise. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the wrath of the Lamb... The Lamb doesn't pour out His wrath on you. The Lamb took the wrath of God on Himself for you if you believe in it. So wrath is not for you. The Lamb took it. But for those who reject the Lamb taking the wrath, this becomes the wrath of the Lamb. Going a bit further here. If you continue on now, go to Revelation 6, verse 12, because something happens at this point first three and a half years, and I think now we're coming toward the end of the three and a half years, because what takes place is the wrath of the Lamb, which begins with the unleashing of Antichrist, and war, famine, death and Hades. What does the world do in response to all these things happening? Martyrdom. The world starts killing Christians. And what does the Bible tell us happens in Revelation 6, verse 12? I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. And the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island, island would be Fidalgo, were moved 
out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us! Hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come. Who is able to stand? Listen, seal number six, terror. You can come up with another word for it, but it is worldwide global terror. Jesus doesn't specifically talk about that in Revelation 24. He doesn't mention that as He's chronologically taking people through, taking the apostles through the end of the age, the tribulation. Those first three and a half years as He's describing all that will take place, He he omits this. And I think because it was unnecessary for them to hear at that point. But probably toward, and listen, probably toward the end of the first three and a half years, there's a transition from birth pains to full-on labor. And that's the midpoint of the tribulation. Ladies, if you've gone through labor, you understand there's a transition. There's a point at which the, you know, the birth pains that come and go and come and go and come and go, all of a sudden, And you know, get to the hospital. Move. There's a difference. I remember it with all three of our kids. There's a reason why women get pregnant and men don't. We couldn't handle it. I would never want to go through that. See, I remember. I I don't think women... this This is important to note. I don't think women remember. I think God gives a special gene that when a woman gives birth... All of that horrific pain, you know, one moment after the, the baby is born and starts going, wah, wah, the, the, this is wonderful, how soon can we do this again? And meanwhile, the husband's mopping his brow saying, never? I saw what you went through. <laughs> anyway, that had nothing to do with anything. Just felt like sharing. Note this, at this point, toward the end of the three and a half years, and in the, before that midpoint, or coming up to the midpoint, massive, massive cosmological, geographical, topographical changes will begin to take place on earth at a supernatural level. You can almost discount the first, se- first five seals being broken. You can discount those and go, well, you know, Man of lawlessness and war and famine and death and hate and all that stuff. I can see, I can see all that just happening. I mean, some of that happens right now. You know, there have been antichrist individuals. As John said, many antichrists have come before. So I can see that kind of thing happening now. And all of a sudden you get to verse 12 and supernatural terror begins to happen on the earth. The world comes unglued. The very sky will look like it's being rolled into a scroll. I can't even, I don't know how to describe that. I look up the word in the Greek and, and in the Hebrew, and it's like, it just scroll. What is that even going to look like? We were driving into Anacortes, and I was talking with David. This is, we went to Costco the other day, and we're driving back in, and, and the storm was rolling in, and the clouds were literally kind of rolling over each other. And there was sunshine kind of over to the left behind us, but as we drove down 20, it was rolling in, and, and I said, David, look at that. And he was watching the birds fleeing. There was a massive flock of birds. They were just taking off. Dad, look at all the birds fleeing. And I said, yeah, look what's coming. 
<laughs> and it was ominous. Just rolling in. Can you imagine the actual sky rolling back? And the actual stars falling like figs when cast from a tree. Ripe figs are just falling right and left. Everything's coming unglued cosmologically. And islands are moving and mountains are moving, which means massive earthquakes are taking place. And the sun goes black. And the moon blood red. And all of this taking place. Somebody's angry. Do you remember when he got angry before? Both at the beginning and the end of his ministry. John chapter 2 in the beginning of his ministry. Matthew, Mark, and Luke at the end of his ministry. I believe it was both times Jesus entered the temple and cleaned it out. As he started and then at the end. And he was mad. I've said before, a single guy taking on dozens of Jewish businessmen. He had to be tough. And he goes into the temple and he begins, this is Jesus, sweet Jesus, just Jesus. Begins overturning the money changers' tables. Now, brothers, if you get upset with something going on in your household, don't overturn your dining table. It's not a good picture. You get a sense of someone out of control, although Jesus wasn't. He's overturning tables. He makes a scourge of cords and he begins lashing and whipping and driving out the animals and setting the doves and pigeons free and the people are getting out of his way because this guy's nuts. By comparison, that anger was like raising an eyebrow compared to what is coming in the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath, the anger... Jesus will be angry. What's he so angry about? Well, rather than repent, the global elite will lay all the blame of all the world's ills up to that point on the shoulders of believers. And the Antichrist will start lopping off heads in a systematic genocide of anybody who claims the name of Jesus in those days It's all going to happen. In fact, I'll just read this to you. Revelation 13, verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship Him, Antichrist. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain, or literally the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Note that. It says nothing about the church. In verse 9. Because the church isn't here. If anyone is destined for captivity, into captivity goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. Here's the perseverance and the faith of the saints as they are being killed. Jesus sees all of this. And this is humanity's response to God's wake-up call in the allowing Antichrist to reign, in the wars and famines and Death and all this, all these writers coming in, rather than humanity going, we, we need the Savior, they will instead follow after Antichrist and begin killing Christians at that time, believers at that time, and Jesus will be angry and he will unleash his furious wrath. And by the way, the globalists and the power players are the ones who know it best. 
As again they say, fall on us, verse 16. Hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. They call it out. This is the wrath of the Lamb. They know it. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who is able to stand? The great day of their wrath. The wrath of God is about to be unleashed. The wrath of the Lamb is being unleashed. And they cry out. And we're talking about the global elite and all their slaves. Humanity recognizes exactly what is taking place. When I was laid up a year ago in bed after my surgery, um, I had to fill the time somehow, so I started watching you know, different shows and documentaries, and I watched Ken Burns' documentary on World War II just called The War. I watched all six sessions of it. Fascinating. And as I watched through this, there was uh, a surprising picture that crossed my TV screen, and I jotted it down because I knew I wanted to share it sometime. Hundreds of men in, in, this, in this image, in this picture, that were all in full gear, seated in row after row on the deck of a Navy ship up in the front, having church right there in the bow. And this scene comes on, and I'm like... And there in the, <laughs> in the bow pulpit, literally, was a pastor... And he was, they were having church up in the front of this ship. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. And then a voice began to read in the background, and this is what the voice said. After the battle for Saipan in the Pacific Theater, one serviceman reported, Sunday, July 16th, 1944. It was a warm, sunny day, though it rained during church services. It was the first time I ever went to church and saw dead bodies floating by. It was nothing to see men, women, and children floating. There must be thousands of Japanese in the waters near Saipan, and the ships just run over them. I mean, I was stunned. These are things, stories we don't often hear. You know, they're having church. But you know what I thought when I sat there? watching this and listening to that, I thought, what a parable for today. Thousands of bodies floating by and many churches like ships just running over them. My question tonight is, will we be a ship that runs over dying people? Or people that for all intents and purposes right now are dead without Christ. Dead in this world, dead for eternity, facing death and Hades. Are we a ship that's just going to run over? Because the thing is, Revelation 6 through 18, as much as we're going to study it, it's not for us. It's not for us. It doesn't apply to us. We're not studying these things out so we can be prepared to see Antichrist when he rises. Or so we can be prepared for these events. We won't even be here. And some would say, well then why study it at all? To change our hearts. To affect our behavior now before we go home. That we would know what's coming. As Zephaniah warned, near is the great day of the Lord. Zephaniah 1.14 Near and coming very quickly, listen, the day of the Lord. In it the warrior cries out bitterly. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. 
All the earth will be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. So we know this is coming. We read about this serious message, this warning, as we began Sunday and continue tonight. We see this, we know it. My question to you, brothers and sisters, is will you share Jesus now? Or will we just sail right over the dead bodies? Will we ignore what's going on around us? Will you share Jesus, even at the risk of being shut out or shut down or looking like a fool, whatever? Who cares what we look like when we know what's coming? And Revelation 6 closes out with the global elite again and their slaves crying out a most fearful question, who is able to stand? Let me answer that for you. Jesus said in Luke 21.36, Keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Pray that you'll be able to stand. But how can we stand? We can stand because before the 42 comes the 24. And what I mean by that in this case is Jude 24, which says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. And let's pray. Father, we've gone for a while now, but this is three and a half years we've just covered. We've just looked at. We've been revealed these things. And Lord Jesus, I thank You for signaling this even before You gave the revelation to John. That we could see Scripture against Scripture and understand the seriousness but also the truth of these things. Father, our... Our prayer and our hope is not that we would be right, but righteous. Not that we would win arguments, but win souls. Not that we would be carefree, but that we would care more for all those around us. And there are many, so many, Lord, who are floating by, and they're floating by in death. And we have the words of life. The words You spoke, Lord Jesus. We have the hope and the joy of our future with You. So that no matter how bad things may be on this earth, we have a joy looking ahead. No matter how troubling this world, we are not troubled. Because of Your peace and Your promise. And so, Lord, I ask again in my own life, as I pray for all my brothers and sisters, that we would turn our eyes off of ourselves and our problems and our issues and live solely for Jesus. Because the worst of our life circumstances, Father, you know, it's going to vanish when we're called home. When we're raptured, it's done. But what about those who don't know you? I pray, Father, that they might become our chief concern. Lord, I thank You for Your Word, and I pray, 
Help us to continue our understanding of it. And thank you. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us your truth tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've never accepted Jesus, what we've talked about is what's coming. And I don't say that, you know, I want to scare anybody into heaven, but you know what, I'm, I'm not sure that I'm, I'm beyond that. I, I'm actually okay with that. I mean, if you get frightened into heaven and you're in heaven, you'll be so thankful. <laughs> so if I have to scare the heaven into you, so be it. Jesus is real. His peace is real. His love is real. His grace is real. You don't have to bear the wrath of the Lamb. The Lamb bore the wrath for you. So I invite you tonight, if you've never made a decision to give your life to Jesus, to do it right now. And if you have, and you're a Christian living troubled, and you're having trouble even grasping, how do I walk in this world without being stressed and downtrodden and upset? Either case, why don't you come forward and let's pray. Pray to receive Jesus, or just pray to receive some more. Whatever your need, please come. Let's stand and sing together.